0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and so grateful to have this platform to talk about faith and politics and these really important ideas with really interesting people, accomplished people of goodwill, in good faith. It's an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And hey, I have a favor. And I've asked this favor before, but I'm serious. Can you leave a review? Just go to one of the podcast apps, whether it's Apple or CastBox or Podcast Addict uh, Add- or Pocket There's there's lots of them and you can write a review. It really does help if you do that. It helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Matt Lewis. Matt Lewis is a senior columnist at the Daily Beast and the author of Too Dumb to Fail, How the GOP Betrayed the Reagan Revolution to Win Elections and How It Can Reclaim Its Conservative Roots and his new book, which I recommend to everyone, Filthy Rich Politicians, the swamp creatures, latte liberals, and ruling class elites cashing in on America. You might recognize Matt from his appearances on MSNBC's Morning Joe, and prior to that as a CNN political contributor. Matt's also provided political commentary on Real Time with Bill Maher, Face the Nation, The News Hour, and Nightline, among others. Matt's writing appears in outlets such as The Wall Street Journal, GQ, The Washington Post, and Politico. Um, and uh, as, as mentioned, he's a senior columnist for The Daily Beast, so that's where you get to see him almost on a daily basis. It's a, a, the prolific writing uh, is, is remarkable. Um, Matt previously served as a senior contributor for The Daily Caller and before that as a columnist for AOL, AOL's Politics Daily. And Matt is also the host of Matt Lewis and the News and is a co-host of DMZ, along with Bill Scher, Two great podcast that I also highly recommend to everybody, most notably... And this is not uh, not known yet, so I might be breaking news. Matt Lewis will soon be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How you doing, Matt? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Great to be here. And, man, when you put that resume together, the, that bio, it sounds legit, you know? <laughs> uh, what is it? Costanza's... George Costanza had some line about if you if you took everything I did and
1: you condensed it into five <laughs> seconds, it's okay. Yeah, it's pretty good. And that's yeah. just in the last week. I mean, I, I didn't get into the week before. So. It, it all. Also- is, is Huey Lewis in the news? Are they going into the Hall of Fame? Is that did I miss that? Oh man, that would be appropriate because he's suffering from um, a, a, an illness uh, where yeah he, he can't hear. He can't hear. He can't sing. Uh, he's still functional. I, I, he, he's relatively healthy. It just affects his ability to play so it would really be appropriate but then again like he was like a local bar playing band guy and he had that one big album right in the mid 80s or do i remember that right sport well there were
0: really two pretty big i i know this because i just listened to a podcast called political beats which is put out by national review okay um and they they have like a political person that will come on and and talk about uh, the entire catalog of a musician. I actually was the guest on the show talking about John Cougar Mellencamp. They just did one on Huey Lewis in the News, Um, and I listened to the three-hour or whatever long conversation they had about him, and I think it was really two big albums. I think it was Sports and Four, F-O-R-E, were the two that
1: most of the hits came from. You know, so this is how like I have my blinders on I literally just now put together Huey Lewis and the News and Matt Lewis in the News <laughs> I've been listening to your podcast for years and I just now it occurs to me oh that's
0: what that means well because you know it's not it, it's a subtle it's not a pun right because like Matt and Huey don't rhyme, you know, so um, it's a subtle homage. I pay homage to him, I would say.
1: So that's a thing that you have. You pay homage, like both of your book titles are paying homage. I was trying to think of what the next book is going to be, and I I was going to put in a pitch for, because I sent you that essay. uh, I'm not nearly in your, even remotely in your league writing-wise, but I sent you that essay uh, advocating to have the um, uh, Gottheimer and – uh, Fitzpatrick's, uh, you know, uh, to kind of take take hold of things while they can. The the pro- So your next book will be about, you know, moderates or centrists kind of taking over and we'll call yeah. it the, uh, instead of Barbenheimer, we'll call it Fitzpatrickheimer or something like that.
0: <laughs> well, I don't understand. It's a valid point. I mean, you know, if, if six, okay, if six Republicans can take over the House of Representatives, why does it have to be these six? Right. Why couldn't it be? another 6 who say look if you want our vote then and you need it you got to have it right you got to have our vote then let's run it as a bipartisan operation or let's let's
1: let's do things a little different exactly it's and the the problem solver's caucus has 61 members e- evenly split i think there's one extra republican because republicans have the the majority but if if 6 or 8 republicans can shut things down virtually why couldn't a, a a caucus of centrists or people who actually don't think you know somebody with a different letter before their name is is evil and and Satan worshippers? You know, they, we're all humans. We're all Americans. You know, I, I wonder why a caucus that substantial can't take the reins and and you know bring some sanity back to uh, to the House. And what's the Yates poem about the uh, the?
0: The worst being full of passionate intensity, Um, you know, and the best. I mean, I think that the people who are sane and somewhat moderate and want to get along are not predisposed to take their team hostage. But maybe they should. Like maybe they need to show a little leadership and say, oh, you need these these other six crazy votes to get something done. Well, guess what? You're not going to get anything done without
1: me either, right? We're we're going to insist on sanity, or else. So so here's here's a question, and this will bring it home. I don't know if you've seen this. I've seen it on a smaller scale, where my, sh- my the very nature of my show talk politics and religion without killing each other. It's it is about collaboration and seeing people on a human level, as opposed to putting on our partisan jerseys. Um, you're very much the same way. I think you refer to yourself as an open-minded conservative. That's not something that gets nearly as many clicks as uniparty Satan worshiping groomers. You know, like, have you noticed that every once in a while, if you have a headline or one of the titles of an episode is a little bit more pointed than what your typical fare is? Do you get more clicks? Do you get more hits? And if so, is that just a little bit enticing for you to do more of?
0: I don't think it matters at this point for me. I think I've cast my lot. But but I do agree in general that what works in this business yeah. as a an industry that we are in, what works is picking a team and sticking with that tribe, and not not going back and forth, not trying to be nuanced. That's what works in terms of getting clicks, getting views, getting ratings, and all of that. And I've done the opposite, <laughs> as have you. Yeah. So. Then um, now we're looking for and see the, the problem is, I think the majority of Americans are where you and I are, but they're not obsessed with politics, right? And so the problem is that the, the niche of people, the audience, the fan base that is obsessed with politics have very strong viewpoints I, and, 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 and they see it as a team sport. You're either, should either be on the right or the left. And once you make that commitment, you should be with that team, whether they're right or wrong. Yeah, you know, and and that's not how I view it as a journalist. And um, and but sadly, that's what it's become.
1: Well, you're also in a unique position. And I'm curious if you experience this as well, where you occupy spaces. You grew up with people, I'm guessing, and now being based in West Virginia, whether it's people that are super, super engaged or people, say, from my church community, um, it's it's not that every single person that goes to my Bible study is watching Fox News all day, every day or Newsmax all day, every day. There's certainly, you know, a, a percentage of folks that that are very engaged that way. They're the more, um, they tend to be the more extreme, uh, f- folks who have the more extreme views politically and socially. But because they are there, that's sort of the default posture. And it's like the the mist in the air that we all walk through in certain circles. At the same time, Uh, Like you, you you probably have other bubbles, if you will, like your DC friends, perhaps, uh, that are watching different news channels. And if they're not watching it all day, every day, they're in that mist or that silo, if you will. Do you find yourself translating for one crowd in West Virginia or at church and then translating for another crowd when, when you're in different circles?
0: Not too much because, believe it or not, I try not to talk about politics mm. um, with with people who are not in the industry. You're like, I'm just here for the soccer game. I just want to yell at the ref, like <laughs> <laughs> you know, because like, I live in West Virginia. Yeah. My kids both my kids go to uh, Christian schools. Um, I coached little league a couple years ago. Um, we go to a church out here. We go to not just a church, but we go to their picnics and their cookouts and all that. I have lunch about once a week with my mom and her sisters. She lives in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I interact a lot with people who are very Trumpy and very, very into Trump. And then, of course, uh, I go on like Morning Joe and I go to D.C. every once in a while. And I still have a lot of friends who are more never Trump conservatives. So um. But I would say that it doesn't really come in handy in terms of translating to f- people, friends. I think it really comes in handy as a writer. Like the fact that I have this uh, diversity of opinion that, that, I, um, that I'm not in the, bu- I'm not just, maybe I'm in a couple bubbles, but I'm not just in one bubble. Right. I am hearing, and I think that definitely informs and helps me as a writer. I will say it is a real disappointment in one sense, which is that when, when you're growing up, you know, the one thing you want, if you're like me, you know, some people want to be famous and they want to be rock stars and all that. To the degree I ever wanted any of that, it would really be to like make the people where I'm from proud of me, Mm. you know, like to make your parents proud of you or the people where you're from proud of you. And that didn't happen because they, because I'm not on Fox news. If I was on Fox news, I would have made them proud I'm not talking about my parents specifically yeah. here, but family. I'll say broadly speaking, family, and where I'm from. The thing that really, if, if there's anybody in the world you would want to impress, it's the folks where you come from. And um, by virtue of not becoming a Fox News right winger, I sort of, you know, skipped that that opportunity.
1: Oh man, yeah, that's something it, where it's still. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So that drive uh, from your house to Pennsylvania you describe at the beginning of the book that you're both 45 minutes away from a not a Bob's Big Boy, a um, w- w- what's the diner that's 45 yeah. minutes away from both of you? There's a so this is in Hagerstown, Maryland. Yeah. Um, well, your dad was a, a prison guard for 30 years, right?
0: Yeah. Wow. I pass it on the way sometimes if I if I take the Sharpsburg Pike into Hagerstown, I pass the th- three prisons actually. Uh, right there, and he worked at all three at oh, different wow. times in Hagerstown. And it's Bob Evans is Bob the he- restaurant. <laughs> but look, I don't limit myself just to Bob Evans. There's an El Ranchero there <laughs> as well. But um, that's where we meet oftentimes.
1: And um, so I was curious if the if the uh, if you noticed. If you're able to see which way the wind's blowing politically by how many uh, Trump signs there are out, you know, or how many make America great again signs there are.
0: That um, I would say a few years ago, there were not as many as there used to be when I first moved out here. And maybe I've just gotten used to it, but it was shocking. Yeah. I mean, there was even a Confederate flag uh, that flew very near my house at a house uh, luckily, I haven't seen that in a couple years. But that is truly ironic because I don't know if you know this, but the state of West Virginia literally seceded from, from Virginia. Virginia. When Virginia left the union, right. we left Virginia. So it's ironic that we ha- that that happened. Um, I will say that these lunches with my mom and her sisters serve as very interesting focus groups on what people think is happening what Fox is saying because it's a lot of Fox yeah. and um, there will be things that uh, that I will not have heard of that I'll hear from them at lunch. And then, I, of course, it's it's become like a big meme <laughs> that I totally missed <laughs> because it's only being it's only being said on Newsmax or something.
1: Yeah, there are certain things that are being said in a certain bubble. And I, I really appreciate having conversations with my friends who are whether it's Fox News fans or get their information uh, from from other sources. Uh, that that I'm not tuning into every day i I I appreciate that sometimes it it frustrates me frankly because I'm like I can't even engage with that because that's not even based on reality like that I, I I want to take you I take you seriously but I can't engage with that point because there's no there's no factual basis to that uh, but I, I do appreciate because it's oh, you really are concerned. Uh, I live in a certain part of Southern California where it's close enough to the border where it people feel it. People see it. It's it's affecting um, certain jobs in, in our in our area. So people are really feeling that. But it's maybe not something I'm paying as close attention to as someone who's maybe tuning into um, uh, what's his name uh, B- B- Bannon's show every day. Yeah, you know. So. You know, I was curious though. I, I kind of started off by saying how busy you are in this long resume. I was really curious though, how do, how were you able to fit that in? In a serious note, like, because you do have the two podcasts. I think it's about three episodes total every week between the two of them. Um, and you're, you're, Give or take. you're writing your column. I mean, I've seen at least three already this week, I, I think. Um, you know, and and then and then your appearances. But you wrote this book. I would imagine, like. How were you able to work? All, did you just say? Okay, the kids go down at a certain time, and from nine thirty until eleven thirty every night, I'll be writing on the book. How did you work that all in?
0: I feel like Homer Simpson, who said uh, something about I had uh, a wife. Two kids, a baby on the way, and I still found time for eight hours of TV a day. <laughs> um, or, or, or George Costanza, who who was pretending to be an architect, and he and he pretended to build the the or to design the Guggenheim, and he's like, you know, it really wasn't all that hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> believe it or not, it really wasn't that hard. Um, this week has been weird because uh, ever since. The um the coup <laughs> the Matt Gates you know yeah. uh, motion to vacate the B says this has not happened much but they've kind of put me on notice that it's all hands on deck so my schedule's been out the window oh, man. but normally speaking I have a schedule and I write three days a week I write a column three days a week which seems like a lot for if you talk to a columnist they'll be they're like that's insane three columns a week how do you do it but that still leaves you four days where you're not doing anything. You're off, right? You're four days when you're off. Um, and so – and two weekdays because I write – usually I write Monday, Thursday, Friday for the Daily Beast. And part of it is the philosophy. I have to tell you my philosophy of writing is like even though I, I love writing and uh, at, at its best I'd like to think that it's art at some level – But in terms of the work ethic, I view it as like um, if you're a carpenter, you get up and you build a deck and you might not feel like getting up. You might not feel like building a deck, but you like are going to do it. And some days you build a cathedral every once in a while. You might build a cathedral. Most days you're just building a deck. Right. But you got to do it. And so that's the philosophy that I have. Um, There were a couple of – one quote was uh, Andy Rooney, at least it's been attributed to him, where he says, if you're a writer, you don't wait for an idea. You sit down at a keyboard and damn well decide to have one. I just sit – so three days a week, I sit down and it's scheduled. It's Monday, Thursday, Friday, ideally. Um, And those days, I decide to have an idea and I write. And I'm also blessed to have people that I collaborate with. Mm who helped me. And that was the case with my book. It's the case with my column. Some of those people are paid by the Daily Beast to be my editors or paid by my publisher. Some of those people are friends and just colleagues uh, that I bounce ideas off of, help edit things for me, give me ideas. Bill, You mentioned Bill Sher. Yeah. He's an, an example of someone uh, who I can pick up the phone and brainstorm with. Um, but writing the book, you know, you start to do the math and you're like, okay, I just signed a contract for this book and it needs to be a minimum of 60,000 words. (laughs) And that sounds intimidating, right? But then you're like, you do the math and you're like, okay, I've got nine months to do that. And you're like, if I write 250 words a day, I've got a book. Wow. Okay. And you break it down and by how, how much do I have to write every day? And it becomes pretty darn manageable now the truth is it doesn't ever actually work that way but psychologically breaking it down into that bite size funk you know that that will psychologically uh it makes it less intimidating um i did i pulled zero all-nighters i took no time off from work wow i didn't miss a birthday i didn't miss an anniversary i didn't uh you know, it just – it was part – I just scheduled it, and, and I had a lot of awesome people who were helping me. You know, it takes a village. And um, so it, it wasn't that hard. The hard part for me was promoting it. Once the book comes out, um, <laughs> yeah. then I had to take time
1: off, and then it was brutal. So I'm going to give uh, listeners a look behind the curtain. I was really surprised when, when I reached out to you because I initially reached out right before the book came out on Twitter, but I stopped – I, I didn't stop using Twitter but I stopped the frequency that I was going on and then I, it just slipped my mind I'm like oh shit I gotta I gotta hit up Matt <laughs> in like a normal way like either text or your email or whatever and it had already passed and I reached out to that and he's like yeah as long as you don't talk about the book because <laughs> we well yeah no so so the way by the
0: people don't realize the way it works for for 99 of the authors, this isn't always true. Some books have long tails. Some books break late and become hits a year after they come out. But by and large, for most authors, the only thing that matters is the first week or two when the book comes out.
1: So it's like an election, like opening a movie yeah. or like an election in a way.
0: <laughs> it's like an election because you're, you know, right these days with elections, you're banking early votes, yeah. right? Yeah. We're banking pre-orders. Okay. They count just like early votes, but then it's it's two weeks and you throw everything you have and every interview should come out during the first week of the launch. Oh. And if it doesn't, it's much less helpful to the author. Um, and then frankly now, so my book came out July 18th and that week, I mean, man, I was on The Young Turks. I was on Megyn Kelly's show. I was on Morning Joe. I was on you know, I don't even remember. I was on like Will Cain's Fox News podcast. I was on Andrew Sullivan's podcast. I was on Jonah Goldberg's podcast. I was on a lot of stuff, yeah. you know, CNN here and there. Um, and I had the shtick kind of down pat where I could talk about the book. You know, I could talk about the fact that, you know, the average member of Congress is 12 times richer than the average American family. And I had, you know, had all my talking points about filthy rich politicians and um, and now I could get through an
1: interview, <laughs> but, my, but but I wouldn't be nearly as sharp as as I would have been in July. Fair enough. Well, the one thing I that really jumped out at me was that this isn't the the problems that you describe aren't exclusive to one party or the other. In fact, one of the illustrations that really was uh, was stark was um, the fact that people from the squad. AOC and and um, I forget it was Rashida Tlaib or, or Ilhan Omar are like they own real estate. So the particular yes. version <laughs> of the relief, the the renters relief that they were advocating for, really served their own best interests as real estate investors. Yeah. Could you do you remember that? If you remember that,
0: yeah, yeah. And this was, I mean, this one is not the most egregious of things. Uh, I think the insider trading stuff is is the worst, and. As you noted, it's bipartisan, bipartisan. Right? Nancy Pelosi, it's bipartisan. Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, and Richard Burr, a Republican, were the two worst examples of of people who engaged in very suspicious trades that that looked looked to be uh, improper. Um, but this was interesting too. I had a chapter called "Latte Liberals," um, and in that chapter, we talk about I forget which it was. Two of the three. There's there's four squad members. It was two of them. Yeah. Um, it might have been AOC. It might have been Rashida Tlaib. But anyway, two of them, um, and they're landlords, and they make a pretty substantial amount of money off of rental income. And um, and so during COVID, the the squad was pushing to uh, for a moratorium on rent. Uh, they wanted a moratorium on rent, and they wanted a moratorium on evictions. You know, you couldn't kick anybody out if they weren't paying rent and the people didn't have to pay rent but <laughs> they put in <clears throat> they included a little a little uh, rider that said that the landlords had to be reimbursed for this you know by the government right, right? they had the landlords so the landlords had to be paid which is interesting
1: because two of – at least two of them are
0: landlords, yeah right? So little could be self-serving potentially. Could be.
1: Could be. Speaking of self-serving, <laughs> I want to be self-serving for a second. I, I want to ask you as a fellow podcaster how you do your prep with that many uh, – with a couple of different podcasts and being a guest on several. How, how do you prep for every – because I, for me, if I'm having somebody on like you with a book or I had Yasha Monk on, I had Robbie um, – Robbie Jones on from PRRI, and I just see it as my job. Oh, gosh, I'm having Yuval Levin on next week. I, like, talk, That'll be fun. Talk about reading. I have a lot of reading to do over the next yeah, week. Yeah, he's great. So um, so how, how do you pre- – do you feel like it, – it, do you need to read the book if you're having somebody who has a book coming out or is just being ensconced in the issues of the day – um, are you on your game all the time and, and your inquisitiveness is the preparation itself? Or h- how do you prep for for your um, your interviews?
0: Well, um, sometimes I read the book. Sometimes I read the book very thoroughly. And in fact, several times I have been complimented by people who say you're the first person who read the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, and And they're delighted because they spent a year writing a book. They've been doing this media tour. Yeah. And um, I was probably the first interviewer. But it's really it's, – it's, it's unrealistic to think that every interviewer can read the book, right. especially if you had a daily show. There may be um, interns who do it and they are Pull feeding you, you know, whatever. Sort of yeah. researching it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so it's really hard, but ideally I like to read the book thoroughly and really do prep. But unfortunately, it's just not always possible. And so sometimes I will cheat and listen to podcasts.
1: I don't think I've that's done that cheating. that with your podcast. Yeah, before. I don't think that's cheating, though. I think that's that's fair research. I mean, listen, if you're listening on three times the speed, <laughs> I really listen. I've done that, too. <laughs> yeah,
0: just to get through not it. Not three times, but time and a half. Yeah, time you know? and a half
1: is fair. Um, but listen, that that's just being resourceful, I think. Is to listen to other interviews, especially certain kinds of interviews. There are some that are the seven-minute segments where it's just real quick hits that I, I don't think do us any favors. But to listen to you in a, a ninety-minute interview with Jonah Goldberg, I mean, I'm going to get something from that.
0: And if you're and and I think you know, if 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 you're a good interviewer and you're fairly smart on the topic and you listen to that, that's going to spark questions that he should have asked, maybe that he didn't. Or it's going to bring up original thoughts and original ideas. And so, I, look, I love podcasts. I, I listen to so many podcasts. And that is one of my best ways of consuming information uh, quickly. And uh, I've always learned from listening. Yeah. I like listening. I was always a talk radio guy. Um, and so that, that's one of my secrets. And then, you know, there's different types of podcasts. If you have a book author on – then that's a heavy lift that requires a lot of prep. And so I've started actually doing a little bit less of that, just honestly, because I don't I don't have the time to commit yeah. uh, to it. Um, but if it's if it's something I'm already writing about that's in the news cycle and we're just going to talk, you know, current events, then that's easy. You know, and so there are people I just, you know, uh, I had a guy on the other day. I don't know if, you know, Tevi Troy. No, Tevi Troy. Great guy. And he uh, he's a presidential historian. He writes books, but he also will very often write columns. So he just had a column that was basically about, you know, people are saying Joe Biden should retire, like step down, kind of late, late oh, in his presidency and was he and the retire. Was he
1: the episode that you released a couple of days ago on, on the news? Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So I did listen to that interview. So that's a little that's an easy one for me to conduct. All I have to do is read a seven hundred and fifty word column. Right. And then tevi has been on so many times that he and I have a pretty good rapport. So that's that doesn't take much prep work at all. And I think it's a decent it's a decent product for the consumer, for the listener, that they're they're gonna get something out of it and it and it didn't I didn't have to read a, you know,
1: a tome. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's funny because I I still feel insecure that I'm not going to be prepared enough. You know, I, I basically have to earn my way into a conversation with someone who's at the top of their game, or you know, uh, so, someone like you in, in terms of writing, or Yuval in terms of his erudition uh, and, and his philosophical moorings. Um, I, I feel like I I I don't I don't really belong at the table, so I better over prepare so that I'm not a complete Bust at the table, you know. Um, I mean, I think you're you're just naturally good at
0: this. Oh, thank and you. And you're naturally curious about people, and you're conversational. But I would also say that it's healthy to feel like you need to prepare like a lot. Like that's a good instinct. Yeah. To uh, I think if you you know if you lose that 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 would be a problem. So, but um, it, it it also it for me it for me it has also become you know, weighing the daily beast pays me. So that's, that's a priority. Um, and I've got a wife and kids that that's a priority. Um, and then if I get invited on TV where I'm going to be seen maybe by more viewers than will listen to my podcast, (laughs) like, so it's, you know, you're, you're really, you're, you're kind of rank ordering, like how much time should I put in to prepping? For a podcast, but but if you're inviting, you know Yavol Levin on, you kind of owe it to him yeah. uh, to uh,
1: to bring your A game too. So absolutely. So I, I do want to go back to your columns for a second. Do you inventory ideas? Like if 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 an idea hits you, um, do you do, do you have a pad or something that you keep, or something you type, or speak into your phone, or something like that? How do you yeah. keep track of what you're going to write, or do you literally just sit down on your keyboard and and you know, the, the, the act, the physical act of writing uh, ideas emerge that way.
0: As much as I hate phones, um, they're a godsend and for taking notes. I mean, I, I never was the kind of guy who would carry a journal or a little notebook around, yeah. um, and even though I should have, because th- you think you have an idea and you think you'll remember it and you will not. At least I won't. Yeah. And so I have my phone with me at all times. I take notes on my phone constantly. What
1: about when you're driving? How do you do it when you're driving?
0: Oh, I, I, don't, I don't want to admit this, but <laughs> I pull over. I pull off the road. Yeah. <laughs> I pull off the road and I take the note. Um, and as I'm talking to you, I've gotten calls <laughs> – in the last minute, from my mother-in-law and my wife, I have if they to keep calling. I'm gonna have to. In all seriousness, if they keep
1: calling. I'll have to take. It I because it's an emergency. I drove. <laughs> but, I drove I, real quick. I drove up to San Francisco. My my wife is uh, she got a new job with United Airlines, and she's based in San Francisco. So any chance I get, I drive from here. It's about a five-hour drive, and I listen to at least a half a dozen of your stuff from from your shows, as well as interviews that you're on with other people. Um, and I should have done that because there are so many. To your point, during those interviews there were so many uh, questions like the the interviews I, I think were consistently good but there might have been follow-ups or or threads that i would pull pulled on and i really should have been better at uh, pulling over taking notes <laughs> so i was curious about that it's
0: yeah it driving is a great time to listen to podcasts and uh but yeah it's a great
1: time to take a nap too <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it, it, but but I will say, um, so I'm constantly looking for content. I'm constantly thinking. Um, and I also keep notes of like, because when you write a column, the, the most important thing is the lead and the kicker, right? The lead is like the first sentence. And this has become very... This has like become more important, I would say, in recent years. There's a, there's a style of writing that um, that works for outlets like the Daily Beast. Yeah. There's like a formula, and it requires a really good lead, the first sentence, and a really good kicker. And, um, and there are great writers in history who couldn't write a piece in this era for the Daily Beast. It wouldn't work. You know what I yeah. mean? Like they 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 would have to change. It would just it wouldn't. Like I have, you know, I have the picture of Joan Didion uh, behind me here. Yeah, and if if I turned in, she's one of my favorite writers. Her nonfiction essays, I love. But if I turned in one of her essays, like I'd be laughed out of the room, and they would mark it up, and you know, it, it wouldn't fly. Um, so I keep notes of like leads and kickers um, that will someday come in handy. A lot of them are actually song titles or song or, or like hooks from songs. Yeah. that will someday fit a political point or a political column. But the other thing I do is whenever, you know, I write every Monday, Thursday and Friday, I will also just sit down. I sit down at like 7 a.m. and I look at a ton of websites and um, including the Drudge Report and every other website. And then I will pitch my editor like seven takes or seven ideas. So – It's hard to save up ideas like if I had a great idea, I would have used it last week in my column. So it's hard to sort of save up ideas every once in a while. There'll be an idea that's kind of I don't want to say evergreen, Mm -hmm. but it's like a think piece that is not directly tied to I'll give you like one example. So there was a poll that came out recently that showed it was like a big NBC News poll that showed that that Trump and Biden were effectively tied in the polls. Yeah. And I used that as a news peg, as like a permission structure to write a column about how we're a 50-50 nation and we actually have been for the last three or four decades and why that's actually a problem. And I don't know if you know this theory about the sun. Jonah Goldberg talks about this a lot. The sun party and the moon party. Yes.
1: Like the, su- the sun is in this uh, or the moon is in deference. I forget exactly how he put it, but uh, you, you can describe. it Yeah. I could. Well, so like when FDR was president,
0: the Democrats were the sun party. The Republicans were the moon party. And so the Democrats kind of they're at the top of the pecking order. Right. And the Republicans kind of know their place. Yeah. And have accepted it. And. And then during the Reagan era, Republicans were the Sun Party and Democrats were the Moon Party. It doesn't mean that you have every governorship or that you even have all three. You don't have to have all three branches to be the dominant party for an era, right. for a time. Right. Um, and the benefit of that is you've sort of won the argument yeah. at that moment. And the other side realizes, OK, we better kind of get in line with <laughs> right. the Sun Party. The problem right now and the problem this has been and you've all will talk eloquently about this much more eloquently than I than I can. But the problem with being two moon parties, which we've been for three or four decades, is that you always think the next election we're going to take over. So why compromise? Why change? Simultaneously, you always think we're one election away from extinction. Yeah. And so we have to do crazy stuff to make sure, you know, so that's a that's a, so i was able to use that poll yeah. showing a 50-50 tie as a sort of jumping off point to say like but it's not just the presidential election that's all tied up this has been you know we've had this 50-50 problem for years now and i was able to kind of write i don't want to say a self-indulgent piece but a piece that um that that sort of scratched my uh nourished the soul of writing about maybe deeper political
1: sciencey stuff and to your point, uh, to, so I've been mimicking your the kicker. So to your point, in that piece that you're referring to, the kicker is, two moon parties can lead to all sorts of dark places, but the question remains, when, if ever, will the sun shine again? It really, like, it lingers. It's like a long note that sustains at the end of a really good song, you know? Yeah. It's,
0: uh... And I thought about there's a bad moon rising yeah. or there's a bad moon on the rise or here comes the sun. You know, there's a lot of and you have to be careful with the kicker, right? I mean, it could be too cute. Like I had one the other day. I think it was in my lead where I said, and this is one that I've ripped off many times from Bruce Springsteen. But, I, you know, they were talking about Glenn Youngkin, the governor of Virginia. Yeah. Trying to woo him into running for president. And so in my lead, I put something about you know, they're desperate for a savior to rise from these streets
1: or something like that. <laughs> right. This so, week's savior is Virginia Governor Glenn. Okay. Um, yeah. Primary. Here it is. With Donald Trump continuing to dominate 2024 Republican primary field, some Republicans are praying a new savior will rise from these streets. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. You, you, um, praying in vain, I should say. <laughs> you, you uh, work in pop culture quite a bit. I think there was only one uh, recent essay that I saw where I really objected to it. It was the one on um, it was the one on DeSantis, and I think that was there a Godfather reference in that, if I remember correctly? And I'm thinking, oh, probably. come on. Don't use Godfather, something as sacred as the Godfather, with something as— Do you remember what it was? Uh, I'll pull it up because this— um, Okay. DeSantis.
0: I mean, I'm not above. I'm certainly not above <laughs> it. I'll tell you that right now. I was,
1: I was saying before, your book titles, too, are all you know, these takes on too dumb to fail and, <laughs> or to, to, too big to fail. And- you know,
0: so filthy rich politicians always reminded me of dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking rich— Oh, which is the name of a warrant album, right? from the from the nineteen eighties. But but they didn't want to go for that title.
1: <laughs> well, I thought it was a, a reference to the um, filthy rich agents, the the the, the mm-hmm. movie from a couple of years ago. That's what it, it sounded like. To yeah,
0: me. yeah. Um, Yeah. And then um, uh, uh, too dumb to fail is obviously too big to fail. You know, what would have been great is if people accidentally thought they were buying the Andrew Ross Sorkin book and bought mine. But
1: (laughs) whatever (laughs) it takes, whatever it takes, I'm sure I'm sure he'd get a kick out of it if that actually happened. Oh, so it was um, you you referred to the, the back of the scene. I could. Oh, right. That's right. At the top of the piece, I could have been a contender. I could have been a somebody. Um, uh, okay, so that's that's all along the the waterfront. Or, or, uh, yeah, on the waterfront. So, by the way, this is this is completely off topic. But but it's but it's also it's Marlon Brando. It's Brando, so. but it's also Rod Steiger. So, um, did, I don't know if I ever I couldn't have told you this. I got to spend an entire day with Rod Steiger, and he told me how that scene came to be. Um, and again, this is totally off topic. But if you're into it, I. <laughs> it's really bring sp- it on man so okay so first of all uh, Eli um, I- Ilya Kazan was the was the director a brilliant director they were all from the group theater so they all spoke this like method actor language um, and Kazan had in, in those days instead of having a cab going through an actual neighborhood they would put a cab on a sound stage and behind the cab they would play a film that was the old neighborhood the the, the scenery that they were supposed to be going through well, what happened was the film that was supposed to be playing behind Steiger and, um, and Brando, it broke. So Kazan just came up with something on the fly. He said, okay, I got it. Uh, we'll put Venetian blinds in the back window of the cab. Do the scene as written, because it was a beautifully written scene. This great writer from, uh, to his, uh, I think he might, I don't think he's still alive. He couldn't still be alive, but he lived in Bucks County for a long time. Anyway... Um, both of them, by the time they set up, reset the scene with the Venetian blind, they said, no, no, it just doesn't work because there were references directly to what they were passing in the neighborhood. So they decided to improvise. (laughs) And Steiger said, I knew Marlon was a good enough actor to really work off of a surprise. One of their main teachers was this lady named Stella Adler. Give yourself a surprise so you can work off of it. It'll feed you. So he decided to give his friend... Stella
0: Adler was one of the great... um uh, what's the type of acting? Method called? acting.
1: Yeah, she Method
0: was. Method acting teacher. Yeah, she was right. one of the
1: three main American acting teachers Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Sandy Meisner. And Stella was the, the one who really influenced Brando the most, even though uh, Strasberg tried to take, as, as Brando said, he'd take credit for the sun of the moon if he thought he could get away with it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Steiger uh, brings in a gun. Uh, it wasn't supposed to be in the original scene but he knew the scene would get to a certain point where Brando said I'm not going to take a fall because he's telling his brother the boxer to take a fall so at a certain point that's where the scene where you see in the film where he pulls out the gun and Steiger thought Steiger planned for two possibilities one is he would act scared and he would back down and the scene would go one way the other reaction that he prepared for was Brando and his character would get angry and they would get into a scuffle of some sort and he goes but that and that for that, you know, he, he was. This was like forty or fifty years. I talked to him, fifty years after the movie. He was still pissed off about it. That motherfucker. He he said um, he went a whole different way, and I broke his heart, and I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> and that's where you got he. His, so Brando, he just. I'm getting chills just thinking about. It. He touched the touches the gun. He says, "Oh, Charlie, you was my brother. You should have looked out for me just a little, just a little bit." I could have been a somebody. I could have been a contender. That's where that line comes here. It was a total improvisation. Yeah. Brando's reaction oh. to Steiger pulling out the gun. Um, and the kicker That's of the story great. was um, <laughs> that everybody on set knew it was brilliant. So they did all the close-ups for Brando. But then he goes... But Brett Marlon Brian Marlon, we did all his close-ups, and he pulled the typical Marlon. He said, "I can't think of any more lines today." So my scene, my close-ups, I had to do without Marlon. There, I would have been, I would have gotten the uh, the, the Academy Award if they did my <laughs> close-ups with him. So anyway, it was a, it was a funny story, but really surprising. So I resented you too, that he you used Desantis with such a sacred scene like that.
0: <laughs> no, I I, I want to push back. I, I think it was, a, I think that was a good line. The premise of that column is that DeSantis was poised to be the front runner or a front runner, yeah, and he blew it. Right. So he could have been somebody. He could have been a contender. <laughs> I stand by it. So I have, I have a, a, a a funny, somewhat funny story. I I was, you know, used to do a lot of TV, and uh, I always got to know the drivers, you know. Yeah. And one of our drivers was. um This uh, probably six-foot-six African-American gentleman with a shaved head, super tough. Yeah. Super tough guy. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Spencer for Hire. Oh, yeah. But he looked like—we called him Hawk. Okay. That was actually his nickname. Uh, Just a tough, tough guy. And I was in the car with him, and uh, this was right after— Oh, uh, who, who was the guy who played the Joker who died? Uh, he, he com- Oh yeah. Drug overdose. Yeah. The, the guy from com- Australia. Um, yeah, well, yeah,
1: yeah. Heath, Heath Ledger. Ledger. Yeah.
0: So it was like right after Heath Ledger died and I was talking to him about how like Heath Ledger had been, um, what's the name of that acting style? I can never remember. Method. Method actor. And like, he, he said, this is, this is what tricked me. He goes, like, what's that? And I'm like, well, that's where you you pretend that you're like you, you pretend that you're the person like you're not just you're not just acting as a murderer, you are a murderer <laughs> and you you could be for a year you're a murderer and whatever is it is, and I'm like, I think maybe Heath Ledger went crazy because he was like living as the joker for like a year or two, and um uh." and and i i was going on and on i couldn't think of i couldn't think of the term method acting i think is what i couldn't think of the name but i I forget the details this is like 15 years ago when Heath ledger died and finally i said to him uh it's uh it's method acting and he said um oh you mean like lee strasberg (laughs) (laughs) that's funny yeah by the way doesn't lee lee strasberg plays um he does doesn't he play a character
1: in The Godfather? In Godfather 2, yeah. Think. He plays uh, yeah. I, I, Eli Roth. What, what was it? No, um Chaim. Hyman, Hyman Hyman Hy- Roth. Hyman Roth, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he plays Hyman. I didn't think he was particularly good in that movie, to be honest with you. I, but then yeah, I, I'm a Meisner guy, and me. there was a great... Stella Stella, San, Stella Adler, Stanley Meisner, had a great rivalry with uh, with Strasburg. So literally the day that, that... This was a story that I'd heard when I, I got to Stella's... Uh, Uh, place um she and it was like 10 years after the fact but um they said that the day that lee died stella got up in front of all of her classes and said a a very very influential man of the theater died today you thinking it's going to go a certain direction and and then she goes it'll take decades and decades to repair the damage he's done (laughs) (laughs) even the day he died she was still bitter um is that
0: why, like the Stella?
1: No, that was a Tennessee. That was a that was Tennessee Williams' line. Um, you know, so they. Wow, this is going on a whole. We get this is a this is my other podcast. Um, so uh, Tennessee was living in Connecticut, where the there was like this retreat for the group. What what originally was um, the group theater? It became the Actors Studio, but the group theater had this retreat in Connecticut. And if I remember correctly, if I heard the story correctly, Tennessee was repairing was um he was he was vacationing there for for um and then doing some workshops for the play that became Streetcar. Um it was originally a one-act play that he did that was called uh, the Gin Game or the Poker Game or something. And it was that scene, that scene uh, toward the middle of the play that that the one that we have now where the guys are around the table um, playing playing cards. So it started out as this one actor, a scene that Tennessee was working out, and he had this young, raw actor Marlon Brando go up to do the workshop, and that ultimately is what led to Brando getting the part in on Broadway. It was his first big, uh, big part. So uh, yeah, so he uh, when when you workshop a play like that, the writer is sort of working off of. What uh, good actors are giving them, and they'll sort of shape the character around that. So I think that Stella was—he—he allowed that scene to go to an extreme that he might not otherwise have allowed it to go, because he had an actor that could—that had the substratum for that, you know, that could support it truthfully. But uh, that's just a guess. I'm—I'm such a student of those actors, those writers. Um, I, I, I think that's such a contribution to our culture that's affecting all of theater and film today, to this day. So, wow, I didn't think we'd go in this direction. <laughs> um, Welcome to Film Talk with Matt and <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, so, um, wow, we're already fifty minutes in, and we haven't talked about the uh the trump trials we haven't talked about mccarthy getting ousted we haven't talked about uh the primaries which direction would you like to go in uh, all of three to five minutes <laughs> we'll do a lightning round we can cover all three okay so speakerless house what's your hot take on the speakerless house right now which way do you think it's going to go
0: uh, if I had to bet today, I think Steve Scalise.
1: Yeah, if I if I had to take the favorite, I think that's the favorite. The thing that I that I would want to mitigate that bet is that he's not he's not well. He's he's sick. No, he's not. Uh, I mean, first of all, he was shot. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's.
0: Uh, and then secondly, I guess he has blood cancer. He has blood cancer, which was just diagnosed, or, or at least. He went public with it like a month or two ago. Yeah, this
1: is this is a new, a fairly new thing. So, so that that um, makes me wonder if Elise Stefanik is is uh, is positioned, but I I don't know. I are they going to leave? It, it's like the uh, you you leave all the bullets in the chamber if they leave the vacate the the um, the vote to vacate or what, what's the what's the term for it? Motion to vacate. motion to vacate. If they leave that in there. We're, we're going to see two or three speakers before the, you know, yeah, during this congress. If Jim Jordan got it, oh man, that column you did today on, on Jordan, that I think you were spot on. It, I, I can't see. Thank you. Yeah.
0: So so I decided to make it. Uh, I decided to focus on the fact that he doesn't wear a blazer. <laughs> he won't wear a sports coat uh, as 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 my lead, and and as also a little comic relief. <laughs> You know, for for a serious time.
1: So, for the record, I did not read your piece by the time I sent you my essay with the reference to he threw his hat and his shirt sleeves in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's that's the that's the proverbial dog catching the car. Like, okay, so what do you do now? I, I don't I, I don't see where that goes. I don't see where yeah. like his style is a very combative style, and it's like. Uh, I, if I'm being most charitable, I'd say he's, he's – he is true to his ideals. He's an idealist in sort of a violent way. Uh, but that does not – so what? That's great for punditry maybe. Uh, that's great for a podcast perhaps. Not good for legislation. It's the, the, there's nothing that's going to happen with a Jim Jordan-led house except for more chaos and clicks and tweets. And- yeah.
0: And so I, I think there's three possible ways it could go. If he were to become the speaker, um, which I think is unlikely, but possible. So one way would be that he stays the Jim Jordan, we know, and we end up having government shutdowns, possibly a default over uh, failure to raise the debt ceiling. And we quit funding Ukraine mm-hmm. like he stays hardline, and there are consequences. Um and then Democrats will own the vote that they made because they elected or they, they ousted Kevin McCarthy. In my opinion, they voted for Matt Gates or with Matt Gates, uh, whether they like to hear that or not. That's option A. Another option, the other option is that 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 Jordan becomes the speaker and and then kind of assumes the awesome responsibility <laughs> of being the speaker and governs in a more sane way. And then I think. Within that option, it could go two ways. Um, Either they could try to take him down and he becomes the man, he becomes the establishment, or it's like a Nixon, only Nixon can go to China sort of thing. Like they'll give Jordan more leeway to negotiate and cut deals than they would have given McCarthy.
1: So I think those are kind of the three possibilities. I'm not optimistic that he'll do what we would call grow into the position. Um, although, one thing about your piece about him reminded me that he, he's actually an accomplished dude. If you can set aside his shenanigans, especially uh, since the uh, emergence of the Freedom Caucus, uh, in particular in the Trump era, um, if you can set that aside for a second economics degree, law degree, four time state champion wrestler, uh, two time yeah. national champion at the collegiate level um, this is an accomplished person um, that uh, it. it if we accept, you know, if we, again, set aside uh, some of the the very glaring shortcomings. Um, So I, but I really, I just don't see him being that guy uh, that grows into the position. I I know I'm hoping for it, and there's probably less than a 1% chance of it happening, but, you know, for the Freedom Caucus to take the reins, uh, for something along those lines. But I, I, to your point of what you said at at the top is, that there has to be some sort of coalition that gives enough cover to a majority of the majority, majority of the majority, the Hastert rule, as well as enough uh, enough representatives from the other chamber to make something happen that is a is a makes governing possible, where where the people you know uh, the, the House members get back to the business of the people. So um, but but you uh, you're not as optimistic about that possibility.
0: (laughs) No, but I would like to see it happen, but I'm not optimistic.
1: Okay, so real quick, Republican primaries, you're one of the few people who has voiced and articulated the possibility that Trump might not be the nominee. I've said that, too, but 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 we said it for very different reasons. You laid out a series of events where here's how this could happen. And you still admit that it's highly unlikely, but you're, you're one of the few people. So do you remember the thinking behind that? What- so you're saying there's a chance. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> no, I think
0: Trump is very likely to be the nominee. But if it were to happen, the way it happens is by virtue of the early states, right? We don't have a national primary. So the fact that Trump is up by 40 points or something in national polls is really irrelevant. If he loses Iowa... Which could happen. Mm-hmm. You know, Iowa has gone for people like Mike Huckabee and Rick Santorum. Right. So it's it's within the realm of possibility. And then if he were to lose New Hampshire, and uh, which unlikely, but because he's up big in both states, but it could happen. They, they, they tend to be contrarian and ornery up there. <laughs> and then maybe – so now he's 0 for 2, right? Then we come to South Carolina. Well – in North Carolina—I'm sorry, in, 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 in New Hampshire and in South Carolina, independents, they're like open primaries. There are a lot of independents and even I think Democrats could could play. So you could imagine a scenario where Trump just loses these, op- these early states by flukes, by orneriness, contrarianness, whatever. Um, and now at some point it's over. Right. And it, and 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 I don't know if you remember, like Joe Biden lost a whole bunch of states early on, yeah. and Carolina. then was able to turn it on. Yeah. So maybe the reverse would be true for Trump. Whereas I guess the, in a way, Joe Biden disproves my point. <laughs> I mean, well, one way of looking at it is you could lose a bunch of early states and then come back. Right. Um, but another way of looking at it uh, is that there at, at a certain point. Momentum kicks in and you you could run away with it. So someone someone could catch fire by virtue of this primary process. Right. I
1: don't think it's going to happen. But I just think at a certain point you have to deal with gravity. Um, There's there's a couple factors that there. The Republican primaries are ignoring certain realities and at a certain point. It has to be dealt with. There's still, so for example, uh, if in particular the criminal cases in Georgia are, if the, that trial is held and he's he's convicted, Trump is convicted. That one in particular, there's no there's no presidential pardon for that. Um, so you're literally looking at a initially a nominee, a candidate, and then a president that is in jail. That is literally. A convict. Um, so I think if and when that happens, the Republican Party is going to have to reckon with gravity, as I as I think of it. The other one, and it's another gravity thing, I, I'm using gravity as more like two plus two equals four, um, you know, uh, meaning that there are certain realities that we like to try to ignore, yeah. but they're, they're realities whether you want to submit to them or not. Um, the other one is And I haven't heard many people other than Mike Madrid talk about this is actuarial realities, meaning um, a uh, I forget what the exact numbers are. But I think it was by the time we get to 2024, uh, 10 million baby boomers and silent generation uh, members will have died and 14 million what is it uh, what my kids are Gen Z? Gen Zers will have turned 18. So 10 million and the baby boomers yeah. of the silent generation are um, a large majority are voting for are Trump supporters, whereas 18 year olds, 18 to 25 year olds, a, a vast majority are you know are Democrats, progressives, liberals. So that's that's an actuarial reality that isn't being factored into a lot of the analysis that I'm hearing. Now, yeah, so th- those two
0: well, and I think part of the problem is that although that is gravity and although that will catch up to us because of the electoral college, it may not matter in time for 20 20- that part, may not matter in time for 2024. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, because a lot of those young people live in California, <laughs> which is already it doesn't is irrelevant, yeah, you know, yeah. There could be a billion kids turning 18 in California tomorrow, and it still and doesn't it
1: matter. It won't change. It the wouldn't election. help.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't change. Yeah, I do think. I do. I, I will say. I, my guess is that the way it'll work with Trump is at some day, someday, and it might be after he's been elected again. But at some point, I think pe- faith in him will collapse, and I don't think it's going to be like a matter of. Accretion, or like that, it's going to happen. I think it'll just like happen, right? Like the tipping point, where like at some point, all these crazy things have happened. It's never hurt him. It's never moved the needle, and then support for him will collapse all of a sudden. And it'll be like, "That I'm surprised. Why did (laughs) what happened?" And you're like, "What are you talking about?" He's been indicted four times, uh, and he's been. Uh, impeached twice, uh, and and you'd be like, I know, but
1: he was really popular after all that stuff happened. Well, Trump could speak to that. He has a lot of experience with bankruptcy, and that's how they describe bankruptcy. It's very gradual until it's very sudden. (laughs) I think that's Hemingway. Is that Uh, Hemingway? (laughs) uh, Yeah, it
0: was how do you go bankrupt and—
1: I'm telling you, man. You with your 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 cultural references. I thought you were going to maybe not today and maybe not to tomorrow, but someday. <laughs> <laughs> so I I can't believe I have hardly even referred to my notes. I swear I prepared one, two, three, four, five, six, eight pages of notes. We didn't get to any of it. Okay, last. Um, I, I uh, did, was there anything important that I did not need to ask you about that I haven't asked you about? Is there anything you, you want to say? Because I have a couple more questions, and then we can we can wrap up. But I want to no. And, and to
0: be honest with you, because I write about politics and talk about politics so often, it's a pleasure to talk to someone <laughs> about pop culture. Um, So this has been a pleasure, but no, feel
1: free, uh, shoot, shoot them my way. Um, So I I don't think last time I was asking what I call the TPNR question, um, and that is, what do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with, and you could speak to this better than just about anybody I know because of what we talked about before, occupying two very different bubbles, if not more. Um, So what do you think each of us can do to be better able to share space with, have better conversations with, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences, People who think differently than we do have different beliefs than we do. Who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talk of politics and religion without killing each other? Or is it even possible?
0: I mean, probably, there are probably a hundred things we could do, but one that just comes to mind right now is um, to uh, follow stuff that's not politics, right? So, like right now, I'm a big Baltimore Orioles fan. I see. Yeah. They're going to the, you know, they're going to the playoffs. So I could talk to um, someone about the Orioles if they if they were ad- I could sit next to a Marxist at the game and buy them a beer and a hot dog and I'm sure we get along fabulously <laughs> because this this tribe not not the Cleveland Indian tribe but the the team yeah. uh, right now it means a lot right and so if you are fluent in TV shows and sports and um, other things that you can talk about, you don't have to just talk about politics. Then that's that's one thing we could do. Be interesting. Be interested. Be curious. Read. Uh, don't just even if you are if you're a progressive, um, don't you know, just because the other people are in their bubble, try to get out of your bubble yeah. a
1: little bit, including the stuff you're reading and watching. That's what uh, Bob Costas said on the uh, great baseball documentary. He said, when I couldn't talk about anything else with my father, I could still talk about baseball. <laughs> and it's true. I, I lived through that. You know, when I became a Christian, I, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but when I became a Christian, man, those first three or four years were really fraught. And my relationship with my dad, especially at that time, was really, really important to me. But that was, yeah, that was, those were hard conversations, but we could still talk about the Mets.
0: <laughs> I just watched, um, or I think rewatched actually, but, uh, there's a ESPN 30 for 30. It's a four-part series about the 86 Mets. <laughs> um, and, man, I mean, we're talking Lenny Dykstra, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Ray Knight, Kev- Keith Hernandez. Kevin Mitchell, it's-
1: yeah, Daryl, yeah. I can name that whole team. Gary Carter, what a team. Keith Hernandez, Tuffle and Backman were, were at second base. Uh, um, Santana was the, the shortstop, and Kevin Elster came up for the playoffs. Third baseman was Howard Gary, Johnson. Gary Carter. Gary Carter was behind the plate. Outfield was Daryl Strawberry, Mookie Wilson, and, and Dykstra were uh, in the in the outfield for the first part of the '86. They had George Foster. Uh, they traded him away, and that's when um, Kevin Mitchell started playing left field. Wow. Uh, what a team! And then obviously Doc. That was.
0: And, I mean, that's uh, if you haven't seen it. No, I've seen. Check uh, I've it seen out. it. I've seen it. It's good. And if you read, is it Jeff Perlman who has the book, uh, The Bad Guys Won
1: or some, something? The worst team money could buy until, until 2023. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think 2023 is quite different than 19. I think that was the 91 team, 91 or 92 team. But um, OK, any questions for me? So well, I was going to ask your team, but are, are you OK? Are you are you still a Mets fan? die Diehard. Yeah, that's good, and and I'm dying hard that's right good. now. It's yeah.
0: So Baltimore, so you haven't you haven't you haven't adopted the Dodgers no. or
1: no? I mean, there there are teams that I I appreciate their style of play, uh, and there are teams that I would gravitate to once the Mets are out of it. Um, but yeah, I can't. I mean, it's it's like I'm trying to think of a good analogy, but it's almost like a, a tree that's planted in certain soil. You can't just uproot that tree and move it to a whole other coast in a whole other microclimate. It just doesn't work. And, um, yeah. you know, especially if I was – if there was a team that was good all the time, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> like- no. I
0: mean, that's <laughs>
1: – I think it builds character. Yeah, uh, a little suffering, you know. I respect. I respect people that that have been rooting for the Cubs, rooting for the Boston Sox, rooting for the Orioles. I mean, the last time the Orioles were good, it was I think Jim Palmer was on the team. Or I mean, you had stuff to root for in the mid '90s when uh, Cal Ripken was going for the you know for the the streak. So there there have been some things, but for the most part, I mean, it was the early to mid. They had a good
0: run with Buck when Buck Showalter was managing them. Yeah. In the 2014, uh, they had a, they had a few good years. Yeah. Um, but but the last time they went to the World Series was '83. '83. So yeah, it's been it's been a minute. And you know Brooks Robinson just died. Oh, that's right, a couple of days ago. Yeah. So that is kind of now, you know, uh, giving them an additional something to kind of uh, play for. Uh, his his legacy, his memory.
1: Speaking of which, so, so my argument for Keith Hernandez going to the Hall of Fame is that he is to first base what Brooks Robinson was to third base. He's I, if you, I watched him every day from the time he got to the Mets in '83 until uh, you know until he left. I think it was '89 or '90 when he went to Cleveland for his last year. And, and I I had never seen any first baseman like him before, and haven't seen a first baseman as not just defensively proficient, but how he commandeered the entire field. He made Doc. I mean, he was also the leader of the. Team, that's what I was I saying: mean, is he made Doc yeah. Gooden better earlier because he was an on-field coach, even more so than Gary Carter, and he made yep. all those guys like all all those pitchers had better years because they had Hernandez behind them, seeing pitches, seeing. Uh, you know, seeing what hitters' uh, tendencies were, um, seeing what was happening in the field and positioning. He was just incredible, incredible to watch. They talk, about,
0: they talk about people or teams being a team of destiny. And they talk about, like, Orioles magic. I remember that when I was a kid. I'm sure every team had yeah. Padres magic. I don't know. But or- we had Orioles magic. I'm sure everyone had magic. But it is, there is some magic. And if you watch that ESPN 30 for 30 about the Mets, yeah. it's magic. I mean, there was – like they were not going to lose. No. They, could be, they could be down like three games to none and it would be a bloop or just whatever, a, gra- a, a ground ball with a hide, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> whatever it was, a dying quail. <laughs> um, like God, I, I don't want to say God. I, I, I don't know how this works and and i don't know why god would care about major league baseball and the supernatural but i believe that there is some force we do not understand at play sometimes in sports and i'm telling you man i think the 86 mets there was something special mad there was some magic
1: happening there so i never thought of this analogy until as it applies to baseball until just now but um, Glenn Close not, was not only a great film actress, she was a great stage actress. And I got to hear her in a small setting one time. And she talked about certain uh, performances and then certain productions. When the productions would happen, she could sustain this thing. And the way she described it was when you're, when you really, you really know it because you're, uh, she, she said, disturbing the molecules, in the theater, in the live theater, something that's happening when you're really, you know, uh, living out the imaginary world that the writer envisioned, and you're you're breathing full life into that character and working really well off of the other characters in that play, and the audience is a part of that experience, that living experience. She said, "Disturbing the molecules when a team comes together the way they did, all those different characters and each one is playing their role." just at at the right way and and filling in those guys, it's got to be something along those lines where they're just disturbing the molecules exactly the right way to get those dying to fall to you
0: know yeah and again maybe it's just in hindsight it seems like it was always destined but like I I feel like the Red Sox in 86 were just they were they they were des- like like they were the uh I forget what it's called in professional wrestling, not the heel, but I guess yeah, the heel. Yeah. Like they were there to be beaten. And, you know, I, I once or twice a year, I watch Kirk Gibson's at bat against Dennis Eckersley oh. in the 88 World Series yeah. with Vin
1: Scully Oh man, calling it. Oh, my. Oh, so good. I will say that and, whenever the Mets came out to, uh, to L.A., I would listen to the Dodgers feed because Vin Scully was just such a pleasure – to listen oh to, Did, and it's Vince Scully and Joe Garagiola. Oh yeah, yeah. And both of them, I
0: mean, in, in totally different ways, just killing it. But if you watch that at bat, I mean, there are balls at some point. He, I think he's down, oh and two. He's down oh two. Yeah, and, and and he's just fouling balls off, just barely getting a piece of a couple of these balls, just staying alive. I mean, if he's off by a millimeter. Yeah the game's over. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. And yet it seems like it could not, it could not have gone any other
1: way. Like this, is, this was destined to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this was a real pleasure. So before we go, I mentioned all the different things that you're doing, uh, your column at the Daily Beast, your two podcasts, the book. Uh, so how can we follow you, find you online, your columns, your podcast, the, the new book, and all the great work that you're doing? All
0: right, so definitely read me at uh, the Daily Beast, and I write something like three columns a week. Check that out. Follow me on Twitter at Matt K Lewis. Check out my podcast, Matt Lewis and the News, and please get the book "Filthy Rich
1: Politicians." Perfect, perfect, and, and we'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes so it's easy to click through and find all that stuff really worth the the read and i, I really man i i just really enjoy visiting with you matt this is uh this is a me too for me. hey i just I realized don't know you don't tell
0: so <laughs> but it's, it's fun
1: i when i come back out there um we had a denver Riggleman on the show a few months ago and he has an open invitation i don't know if you're a whiskey drinker but he gave us an open invitation to either depending on which one you're closer to he has one in pennsylvania And one distillery, it's his wife's distillery, actually. She's the only female master distiller uh, in that whole area. So one is in the western part of Virginia, I think south of where West Virginia would be. And one is up Mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania. So I'll give you a heads up. Maybe we can crash his... uh, let me know crash it together
0: I think think we'd love to go that would be fun that would be a ton of fun that's right up our alley I'll
1: give you the heads up and and I'm sure Denver will make a point of being there to give us crap and and, you know drink us under the table (laughs) (laughs) anyway well this is I look forward this is a lot of fun thanks again Matt Um, And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button, leave that review, like I mentioned before, in comments, wherever you get your podcasts. And um, yeah, tell a friend about TPNR. We're easier to recommend than ever. Politicsandreligion.us. It's www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E, S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now go talk some politics and religion and maybe a little baseball (laughs) and theater and method acting (laughs) with gentleness and respect and have a great week.